You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 245, The San Juan Expedition. A few weeks ago, in episode 240, I briefly touched on a military campaign that took place in what is today Nicaragua between the British and Spanish forces that were there along the San Juan River. I want to dig a little deeper this week into what became known as the San Juan Expedition. After Spain entered the war in 1779, many British military leaders saw it as a new opportunity to take more colonies. Spain had been relatively unprepared to defend its massive land holdings in the Americas during the Seven Years' War and consequently ended up having to cede territories to the British. Spain had been reluctant to enter this war for the same reason. But with Spain's entry, British leaders once again looked for weak spots in the Spanish Empire to make part of the British Empire. At the time, New Spain stretched from the southern tip of South America up to what is today California. The only large area not under Spanish control was Portuguese Brazil. There were a handful of other European outposts, including French and Dutch Guiana, just north of Brazil, but otherwise Spain pretty much dominated what is today the western United States and pretty much everything south of that. Outside of its North American colonies in what is today the U.S. and Canada, Britain's only other claim on the continent was a tiny outpost at British Honduras. Britain looked at the opportunity to gain more territory, or perhaps also use a few victories in the middle of New Spain, in order to encourage Spain to drop out of the war entirely. Britain's first offensive, to capture Spanish-controlled New Orleans, failed after Spanish commander there, Bernardo de Galvez, learned of the British plans and instead preempted the attack with an attack of his own on British outposts in West Florida. And we went over that in episode 229. With the advance on New Orleans at a stalemate, British Secretary of State for American Affairs, Lord Germain, considered other weak spots in Spanish outposts. The San Juan River in present-day Nicaragua was a crucial piece of territory in the center of Spain's American empire. The area provided an overland passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean by making use of inland lakes and rivers to carry portage most of the way between the two coasts. A successful attack would capture this valuable portage and would also split the Spanish empire in America in two. The British military planners suggested building a series of British forts in the region which could be used as a launching point for further raids into Spanish territories. Germain reviewed plans suggested by General Sir John Dowling, the governor of Jamaica. In addition to being governor, Dowling was a major general. He had served under General Wolfe in the capture of Quebec during the French and Indian War, 
and near the end of that war, Dowling found himself stationed in Jamaica, where he held a series of government positions, eventually receiving appointment as governor in 1777. Dowling was by this time an experienced officer and a politician with family connections among the aristocracy of Britain, but with no title of his own. Traditionally, Spain and much of its wealth in the New World came from compelling locals to work in mines where they pulled out literally tons of gold and silver for their Spanish masters. Britain frequently profited by looting Spanish treasure ships headed across the Atlantic. In 1779, Dawling continued this tradition with a raid on Omoa in the Bay of Honduras. There, forces under his command captured a Spanish treasure cache worth over $2 million. Dawling began researching resources in New Spain to find other potentially valuable targets. He made the case to London that with a force of perhaps 1,500 regulars, he could capture all of Central America for the British crown. Much of his proposal involved recruiting slaves and local militia from the region to join the British cause. Since the Spanish treated the locals so terribly, he believed this was a real possibility. Dawling outlined his plan to Germain, suggesting a force would land at the San Juan River and capture El Castillo de la Immaculada Concepcion, a fort near Lake Nicaragua. From there, his forces would capture the city of Granada on the other side of the lake and would then be able to control the entire region. Numerous inland waterways would allow the navy to send provisions to the army as it battled for control of this region. If they succeeded, New Spain would be split. Britain could then begin raiding to the north and south, taking towns along the Pacific coast, destabilize Spanish authority, and foment rebellion among the local population. Germain was cautiously intrigued by Dawling's daring plans. The possibility of a British stab into the heart of Spain's American possessions could lead to a potential expansion of the empire, it could also neutralize Spain as a threat in other parts of the world. Spain would either have to give up territory or devote military resources that would otherwise be used elsewhere in the war with Britain. In January 1780, Germain informed Dawling that he was sending 3,000 soldiers to Jamaica, in part for better defense of the island against potential French attacks, but also to provide the forces for his attack on the Spanish coast. Even before receiving Germain's approval, Dawling sent a small expedition to the region to gain reconnaissance and connect with the locals. In late 1779, Dawling had deployed a force under the command of Major James Lawry to occupy an area along the San Juan River. By November, Lawry had written back to Dawling requesting more arms and ammunition, with which he hoped to arm local native tribes and what he called, quote, trusty Negroes, who would support the British. He also needed ship's carpenters and shipbuilding materials so that he could build a ship on Lake Nicaragua to help secure the lake. As the British had done in Canada, they hoped to break the ship into parts, carry it up to the lake, and then reassemble it for use. Since all of this would require naval support, Dawling assigned the sixth-rate frigate, the Hitchingbrook, to participate in the expedition. The Hitchingbrook's captain, Horatio Nelson, was only 21 years old, but had been in naval service since the age of 12, and he had proven himself to be a capable officer. 
Nelson would command the naval force that escorted the troop carriers from Jamaica to the Mosquito Coast and the mouth of the San Juan River. Following the landing of the expeditionary force, Nelson was instructed to provide naval support and help secure supply lines. Governor Dalling issued a proclamation in Jamaica calling for local volunteers to join the expedition, promising, quote, riches and honor, while performing a, quote, essential service to their country. Volunteers would be paid and would be fed as soldiers, but they would also receive a share of any plunder taken. Joining the expedition would be British regulars, including a number of regiments who had been sent to Jamaica from New York. I've seen some accounts that the British expedition was as much as 3,000 men. I think this is inaccurately high. I think that was probably more the total number of troops that were sent to the region over the course of the entire campaign. As best I can tell, for this initial launch, there were between two or 300 regulars from the 60th and 79th regiments. There was another group of perhaps several hundred from the Loyal Irish Corps. I believe this was a group of Irish loyalists that were raised around Boston in 1775, who had then moved to New York with the army and then later got deployed to Jamaica. There were also perhaps 200 to 250 volunteers that were raised locally in Jamaica. They were described as a mix of foreigners, Negroes, and Indians, which I assume pretty much describes anyone who volunteered in Jamaica who was not either white or from the British Empire. The expedition shipped aboard six or seven relatively small transport ships, escorted by the 28-gun Hitchingbrook. In total, I think this initial expedition was a little under a thousand men. I mentioned that Captain Nelson of the Navy had responsibility for the fleet. The Army officer in command of the expedition was Captain John Polson, who held the rank of Major in America. The expedition left Jamaica on February 3, 1780, with six months' worth of provisions, traveling about 400 miles to the British-controlled island of Providence, just off the coast of Nicaragua. From there, the fleet sailed to Cape Gracias a Dios, off the Honduran coast. There, they planned to meet up with Major Lawry, who had been tasked with raising the force of locals to join the expedition. After that, the fleet was supposed to sail down the coast to the San Juan River, and then proceed up the river towards Spanish defenses. When the fleet arrived at Cape Gracias a Dios, Major Lawry was a no-show. They found only one officer who informed Major Paulson that Lawry was still inland trying to raise more recruits. Rather than proceed without the local reinforcements and not wanting to keep the men aboard ship where they would grow sick, the expedition set up camp alongshore and began their own efforts to recruit local warriors from the tribes to join the campaign. About a week later, Lowry finally arrived with about 200 locals who were described as in poor health. The expedition took another week before leaving on March 7th for the San Juan River. The trip there took about two weeks, where they arrived at their target on March 24th. The army established a base at a coastal village known as Greytown. The offloading went, well, poorly. Several overloaded boats capsized leading to the loss of much-needed supplies. Also, one man drowned. Major Polson, however, was undeterred, led his force up the river. Captain Nelson accompanied the force. As the group advanced, 
Paulson received word from Jamaica that another 300 regulars and 300 volunteers would soon arrive under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Campbell, who would then assume overall command. Campbell, you may recall, was a New Jersey-born loyalist who received a commission in the regular army before the war. The Continental Army camped on his family farm at Morristown, New Jersey. Campbell was the brother-in-law of General Thomas Gage, the commander of the British forces when the war began. Campbell had been in command of British intelligence at New York before a major by the name of John Andre bought the position from him and took over. After that, Campbell shipped out for Jamaica with his regiment. Before Campbell could join up with the expedition, Major Paulson pressed on, knowing that he would only receive credit for any success he achieved before Campbell arrived and assumed command. A British advance force of regulars detected, surrounded, and captured a small Spanish outpost. Paulson and Nelson designed a joint attack to ensure that none of the Spanish garrison could escape and alert the main force at El Castillo de la Immaculada Concepcion, which is about five miles further upriver. The British executed the attack on April 9th, taking prisoners, but they did allow one of the Spanish soldiers to escape. The only British casualty was an unlucky soldier who suffered a snake bite and died from it. The British force continued on its way, reaching the castle the following day. The castle, under the command of Don Juan de Isa, had 14-foot high walls, 20 cannons, 12 swivel guns, a garrison of about 150 defenders, less than half of whom were Spanish regulars. Now, the garrison was already on alert from the one Spaniard who had escaped. The defenders were prepared to defend against either a direct assault or a siege and had already sent messengers for a relief force. Because of the formidable defenses, Polson and Nelson opted for a siege of the castle. They only had a small four-pound field cannon and could not hope to penetrate the four-foot-thick stone walls of the castle. But they could harass the garrison by firing from a nearby ridge. On April 13th, the two sides settled into a siege. The outnumbered Spanish defenders were no match for the British force in the long run. The British, however, soon fell victim to the most deadly enemy of the jungle, disease. Rain began to fall almost every day, making the unsheltered attackers miserable. Malaria, dysentery, and typhoid fever began to ravage the ranks. The attackers also began to run out of ammunition for their cannons, as they had lost much of their ammunition in the accidents offloading their boats at the coast. They also began to run out of food. Nelson had been responsible for maintaining supply lines, but instead personally remained at the siege. Supply details trying to bring food from the fleet often got lost going up tributaries. The failure of the British attackers to maintain a regular rate of fire led the Spanish to attempt an attack on the British besiegers, leading to a brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat between Spanish machetes and British bayonets. After 16 days, the Spanish garrison surrendered, having run out of water and ammunition. The British took the castle and renamed it Fort San Juan. Now, the Spanish official tasked with contesting the British overall in the sea region was Matias de Galvez, recently appointed Captain General of Guatemala. 
a vast territory containing what is today the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Costa Rica. Galvez, who had been an army officer for much of his life, was now in his early 60s and not particularly eager to take to the field personally. His son, Bernardo de Galvez, had taken command at New Orleans and had contested with British forces in West Florida. The elder Galvez had only received his appointment as Captain General a few months before the British expedition landed, but he had served in the region for many years. When Galvez learned that the British had taken El Castillo de la Immaculada Concepcion, now called Fort San Juan, he adopted not to send a large force to retake the fort. Instead, he reinforced nearby Fort San Carlos, near where the San Juan River meets Lake Nicaragua, to prevent a further British advance. Galvez had been focusing on the British incursion further north along the coast at San Fernando de Amoa in present-day Belize, where the British had also captured a small fort, which I discussed back in episode 240. But Galvez never attempted to march more Spanish forces deep into the jungle to retake San Juan. Instead, he simply kept the British force there isolated and allowed Mother Nature to do the dirty work for the Spanish. About two weeks after the British captured Fort San Juan, Colonel Kemble arrived with more British reinforcements. He had hoped to continue upriver to Lake Nicaragua, but when he arrived at the fort, he found the British garrison sick and dying. The fort was in disorder. There was not even a guard to challenge his force when it entered the fort. Many of the native warriors who had joined the expedition were annoyed that they had not been allowed to plunder the fort, and having no desire to sit around with the rest of the sick and dying soldiers, almost all of the natives had gone home. For the remaining garrison, hunger, disease, and the relentless rains continued to take a toll. After two months of this, and after receiving even more reinforcements, Colonel Kemble led an advance force of about 250 soldiers upriver, despite the continuing torrential rain. The British advance force made its way 30 miles upriver to the mouth of Lake Nicaragua, only to find the Spanish had fortified the defenses there. The Spanish garrison at Fort San Carlos was no match for the force that Kemble had brought with him. On top of that, a Spanish patrol discovered the British reconnaissance force that Kemble had deployed, meaning that he had completely lost the element of surprise. With that, he opted to return to Fort San Juan. There, Kemble spent a few more months looking for other Spanish targets in the area or another route to Lake Nicaragua other than using the river. The intelligence he gathered about Fort San Carlos convinced him that he could not take the fort without more reinforcements and larger cannons. A Kemble sent repeated requests to Jamaica for more reinforcements. He received promises from Governor Dawling, but found only continued frustration as few of those promises were ever kept. As he waited, his garrison at Fort San Juan continued to be decimated by disease. Meanwhile, the British grew concerned that a French fleet might attempt to capture Jamaica. Governor Dawling ordered Kemble to prepare to abandon Fort San Juan and return to Jamaica. So, by the end of the year, Kemble acted on orders from Dawling to blow up the fort and return with what remained of his expedition to Jamaica. The Spanish forces occupied the ruins of the fort in January of 1781 after the British had abandoned them. 
the survivors of the expedition had evacuated to the coast and prepared to return to Jamaica, finally returning in February of 1781. The campaign had been devastating for the British. Of the estimated 1,800 soldiers and 1,000 sailors who participated in the campaign, only about 380 returned to Jamaica. Almost all of the men had succumbed to disease or other poor conditions in a hostile jungle. From the view from London, the expedition had been a reasonable gamble, hoping to take territory or force the enemy to expend resources to stop them. What British planners had not anticipated was a brutal rainy season and harsh jungle conditions that would ravage the expedition without the Spanish having to do much of anything. The result was a needless loss of about 2,500 British soldiers and sailors. Next week, we're going to return to New York, where General Lafayette returns, and the Connecticut line at Morristown mutinies. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters, as always, in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press, which specializes in military and history books. Go to knoxpress.com to see their upcoming releases. I appreciate all the feedback I receive on my decision to slow down my release schedule for new episodes. I know that many of you are caught up and look forward to each new release, but I simply couldn't keep up the pace. I'm updating my plan to release a new episode every other week. I think that is doable given my current work schedule. I really wish it could be more, but I hope you understand. My offer still stands that if I can get 300 Patreon supporters, I'm going to quit my day job and devote myself entirely to the podcast, meaning a return to a weekly schedule and probably more. I really do appreciate the many of you who have stepped up, but reaching that goal really doesn't seem realistic for the foreseeable future. I've also got to focus on growing my audience more if that plan is to become realistic. But enough about planning and scheduling. This week was another look at how the Revolutionary War was quickly becoming a world war for the European powers involved. 
All of that took critical pressure off the war effort that the Continental Army faced. The expedition was also one of the great many reminders the British got regularly that soldiers in tropical areas in the 18th century did not fare well. The expedition suffered a casual rate north of 80%, maybe closer to 90%, but almost none inflicted by the enemy. Tropical disease was a much more ruthless killer than the enemy ever could be. Because there was no major battle or particular success for the English, the San Juan operation is largely forgotten by history. The only reason it is remembered at all, probably, is the participation of Captain and future Admiral Horatio Nelson in the campaign. Nelson, of course, goes on to become perhaps the most famous naval figure in British history during the Napoleonic Wars. Much of what I found on this topic came from snippets in various Nelson biographies. With that in mind, my book recommendation this week is Horatio Nelson, A Dream of Glory by John Sugden. Now, one reason I really like this 2004 biography of Nelson over many others is that it focuses really on his early life. Sugden came out with a second volume called Horatio Nelson, The Sword of Albion, a decade later, which covers Nelson's later life. The book about Nelson's early life is rather extensive and well-researched. It's almost 950 pages, but the last 150 or so of that is extensive notes and index. Even so, at nearly 800 pages to cover half a man's life is quite a tome. Sugden is British and has written several other books about famous British historical figures, as well as some Native American warriors. In addition to purchasing the book, you can also borrow Sugden's Nelson, A Dream of Glory on archive.org. My online recommendation is an article by George Kotlick in the Journal of the American Revolution called The British Invade Nicaragua, the San Juan Expedition. Uh, I'll confess that I relied very heavily on this article for my research on this episode. Kotlick takes a thorough look at this under-recorded expedition and I think does a really good job of it. All the Journal of American Revolution articles are freely available online at allthingsliberty.com. My question this week comes from Harry Meanwell, who asks, I understand that the first official bank was signed into law in 1791. How did banking work in 1780 in the USA? How did seemingly uncontrollable inflation affect banking? Did civilian salaries increase to help combat the inflation rate? How might citizens have handled the little money they did have? How might military leaders have managed their money? And what were soldiers being paid in? How was this rate determined? Well, Harry, that's a lot of questions. I'll see what I can do with them. You're correct that there were no banks in the colonies or even in the early years of independence. The first chartered bank was founded by Robert Morris, Alexander Hamilton, and William Bingham in Philadelphia called the Bank of North America. It was chartered by the Confederation Congress, but later rechartered by the state of Pennsylvania. The first bank of the United States was chartered a few years later in 1791. Even these banks were for commercial transactions. Retail banking did not really take hold until the late 19th century. Money at this time was usually based on specie, that is, rare metals such as gold, silver, or copper. 
The natural scarcity of the metal ensured that not too much of it would circulate, thus protecting it from being devalued by overabundance of it. The British mercantile system during the colonial era kept most specie from circulating in the colonies. Most of it ended up being sent back to Britain. Some colonies issued paper notes, which could be used as payment of taxes or for other purposes. However, London typically prevented colonies from acquiring acceptance of paper money as legal tender, since British merchants did not want to have to accept money that might lose its value. As such, many financial transactions took place with barter. For example, some officials in Virginia were paid with tobacco, which could then be resold elsewhere. During the war, the Continental Congress issued paper money, which it promised could be exchanged for a specie at some later date. But the value of those Continental dollars fell if people believed the Continentals might not win the war, or even if they did win, might not make good on their promise of giving the holder specie. As a result, the holders of the Continental dollars did suffer hyperinflation, despite legal attempts to force merchants to accept the bills at face value. Civilian workers could demand more money as inflation grew. Soldiers, however, were stuck with their near-worthless pay levels, which did not change. To add to that, Congress did not always even provide them with the paper money on a timely basis, meaning that when they did get it, it was worth even less than when they were first owed it. So, the financial system was a mess. Congress was constantly pleading with its allies, or European bankers, to provide more specie, but they were constantly short. People usually spent paper money quickly, knowing that it would not hold its value, and tried to hoard whatever little specie they might have. Anyone with excess funds would try to buy goods, including horses, cattle, slaves, or real estate, hoping those things would retain their value. But the financial system was a mess. Soldiers were often promised land after the war ended, but Congress even found ways to avoid making good on those promises. It wasn't until the Bank of the United States was established in the 1790s that government finally made good on the Continental Dollars, paying them off in specie at face value. By that time, however, most of the paper was held by speculators who had purchased the currency at pennies on the dollar. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.